G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. We're back today with your opportunity to ask what we started last time we had a conversation like this to call Naughty Questions. Our special guest today has spent his ministry career encouraging people to ask naughty questions about stuff you're supposed to accept without question. He realized that in the journey of our Christian faith, we can become confident in what we believe and we tend to adopt the traditions of our church denomination without question. It's almost as though you think the leaders will be in some ways stumped or even offended if you ask, why do we do this? Over the past 2,000 years, the Christian church has grown to be the dominant global religion. And lots of people do things because that's the tradition we've always held. It's not that all traditions are bad, but we could all do with a better understanding of what they mean and unclutter where we can. Well, the Reverend Ronald Burksmith is back with us today. He's written a book called What For and Why? Asking those naughty questions about stuff you're supposed to accept without question. Ronald Burksmith, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. Nice to be here. Hey, Ronald, 2,000 years of traditions... They're not all bad. In fact, some of them are yeah. really good. So it's not it's mm. not like we're having a conversation today to to attack one one tradition over the other, but really more to understand why churches do things. Yes, exactly. And I I, I think that's basically why the book came out was to just help people to understand what it is that they believe and why they believe it. Not necessarily to change them. They're quite happy to sort of remain there, but as long as they understand why they're doing it and what they're doing it for. Now, let's just touch on a few sorts of traditions, perhaps to whet the appetite of listeners uh, or to spark a question that you might always have wanted to answer. Because who's going to argue, Ron, with public holidays for Christmas and Easter? Because they would have had their foundation in church tradition, not the fact that somebody said, let's have a public holiday in Australia. But that's church tradition that's grown up around Christmas and Easter. And what about yes. bells and smells, incense and altar bells? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about this. There could be various robes and colours and symbols that some churches use, and they mean special things. And even some simple things, Ron, like why do some get dressed up for church and others come super casual? There's all sorts of ways that you can approach the sorts of questions about why we do what we do, and this is the sort of thing that you've endeavoured to, to, uh, to bring some common sense to. Yes, yes, that's right. Well, of course... Um 
the robes and everything like that really came about um, originally were to cover up um, the fact that a lot of um, um, priests, ministers, you know, what have you, had to travel from one place to another by horseback and things were not sort of hygienically lovely, sweet and clean as they are these days to some degree. Uh, and so when they arrived um, in order to do their duties, um, they would don these robes over the top of their travelling, dirty, smelly clothes uh, so that they looked appropriate for what they were about to do. <laughs> now, your tradition is Anglican, isn't it? Yes. So uh, for people who are thinking, uh, how do we make sense of more traditional churches like the Anglican Church and uh, the Catholic Church? And there are lots of other sort of in-betweens that have robes as well. I think in the Lutheran Church, they um, or most uh, ministers will wear robes and there'd be other denominations too. Lots of denominations wear robes. Yeah, well, this is true. Um, and of course, uh, bear in mind with the Anglican Church, there, there's... <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm sort of being rather naughty here. There are really um, three levels of the Anglican Church. There's the um, the Catholic Anglican, which sort of really, if you walked into a Catholic Anglican Church, you wouldn't know it from different from a Roman Catholic Church, for example. You know, they have Jesus still on the cross, and they still um, have the veneration of Mary and all the rest of that stuff. Then there's the more traditional uh, Anglican, um, which sort of broke away from that and and now has the empty cross and um, is slightly more evangelical, sort of, um, but sort of has liturgy and the robes and smells and bells and what have you. Uh, and then there's the um, Gafcon uh, Lower level, what I call the subterranean Anglicans, um, <laughs> yeah, okay. which is the group that I belong to, and um, we don't wear anything. Uh, well, I, I'm, you know, I'm not an Anglican minister <laughs> now, but the, our ministers just wear ordinary clothes, um, and there's no fancy fandangles. Um, as a matter of fact, in the, the one that I attend. There's not even a communion table that just gets marched in when we're having communion and marched out when we're not, sort of thing. So other than that, the church is a big barn. You know, as uh, just as we're getting our conversation underway, uh, there's all sorts of things we might be able to pursue, and I'll leave it to listeners to help direct where yeah. our conversation goes today. But because you've got traditional churches, and in some churches only the priest, only the minister gets to lead around communion, and then you've got other yeah. different denominations where anybody can get up and uh, lead around the communion table. So there's these are the sorts of traditions that... You know, maybe we don't ask these questions enough about why we do that. Well, yes. Well, you see, that's that's something that's developed. Um, you know, and in my book, I actually talk about these these basic um, differentiations that happened. Uh, for example, in the uh, the the original um, Catholic Church, once it broke away from the Orthodox Church. Um, uh, we we find that transubstantiation came in, um, which which means that the priest actually does a, a miracle at the altar, um, as opposed to 
post the Reformation, um, and Luther and Zwigli sort of had their Barney, and out of that came consubstantiation, that, that in actual fact the miracle didn't take place, yet when you actually do consume the elements, they become the body and blood of Christ. And then um, you sort of, um, Zwigli sort of moved away from that completely, and he said, no, they, they, they never ever cease to be just a piece of bread and, and wine, they're only symbolic. And uh, and out of that has developed a lot of the um, the more modern way of thinking of a communion as 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 elements uh, that remain bread and wine, um, but it's it's symbolic. It's something that we we remember the words of Jesus that he said, "Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me." Um, and so it's the doing it that, that that we remember rather than the actual elements being significant in themselves. And so, so many of us get caught up in the differences and the way you do communion's not quite as right as the way we do communion. And in some sense, when you start to explore the ritual, uh, you recognise that the ritual is not quite as important as the relationship that you're trying to build uh, with God. So, uh, so there's something in that, but different denominations do it differently. Well, yeah, but I mean to say, I think God, God loves church <laughs> more more than uh, we give him credit for, and I think I think he just sort of figures, well, look, if he's going to do it that way, then do it that way, and as long as you have a relationship with me. And as long as you remember what it's all about, that I, uh, yeah, I through Jesus came through the incarnation, lived as a human, died as a human being, uh, rose again as God, um, and now lives at the right hand of God, interceding on behalf of sinners. Um, and uh, I sent my Holy Spirit in order to bring you to that knowledge. Uh, now that's what actually is taking place in the communion um, process, and it goes back to the um, uh, to the Passover meal because uh, that's what Jesus was doing. That's what the disciples were doing when he actually instituted. And and significantly, you can't remove the communion service from the Passover because. Well, you know, you've got your scriptural story of what the Passover was about. It was actually in bondage, bondage being taken out of bondage across the Red Sea, which is baptism, and into a, a, a new life. Well, that's exactly what we actually are celebrating in the communion. We're actually celebrating the fact that because of Christ, we have been taken out of the bondage of sin through baptism into a new life. So there were wonderful, rich dimensions around how churches do communion. And part of that is the way that churches look a little bit different. Uh, your book's been out a little while now and you've been getting feedback from listeners. Uh, what sort of reaction have you had uh, on some of the articles that you've included in your book? One of the interesting things that, um, I, at least I find it interesting, is a lot of people asking me questions about the Holy Spirit. Uh, there seems to be a lot of confusion as to who he is. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I, I use that <laughs> deliberately because there are some people 
that have been under the impression that he's sort of like a force, the, you know, may the force be with you kind of thing, you know. Yep. Um, <laughs> and I say, no, there are three persons in the Godhead, um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're undivided in essence and co-equal in power and glory, but there are three persons. In other words, what I'm saying is God apprehends humanity three ways. One, as God, he apprehends, uh, well, right from the beginning, he apprehends uh, creation uh, as the memra or the word, and the word, according to John, became flesh in the incarnation as Jesus, um, and the spirit moved on creation. So in actual fact, God uh, decided the word spoke it into being, and the Spirit made it happen. And there's your three factors right from creation. So what we do in church around the Holy Spirit, there's differences there across the denominations, aren't there? Because in oh, Pentecostal yes. in Pentecostal churches, uh, there's a very different expression and appreciation for the Holy Spirit that you do tend to miss in some of the different denominations, although they're expressing their appreciation for the Holy Spirit perhaps in different ways. Well, even within Pentecostal uh, churches, you've got differences. For example, the, in the southern states of America, um, they actually maintain the Holy Spirit is a force. They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe in the Trinity, Father and Son. But the Holy Spirit is, is merely the, the um, outward effect of those two. Okay. So even within Pentecostalism, you've got differences. So around the issue of how we understand Trinity, this actually becomes one of the important elements for everyone who says I'm in some ways an orthodox Christian, uh, according to an historic perspective and definition, understanding Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, three yeah. persons, one God, and people get confused yeah. about that. Uh, and and ordinary people, uh, perhaps who've not done a lot of reading or extra study on this, uh, can be baffled by it. Well, this is true. This is true. Um, my studies, uh, my studies really began um, when I real I I, I I discovered the Cappadocian fathers. Now. Um, Basil, John, and Gregory lived back in the 360s, you know, that, that era. Um, and um, they were part of the orthodox uh, side of things. Um, and, uh, and they spoke a lot about the, the, the working of the Holy Spirit, the uniqueness of the Holy Spirit, and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and I think it was John uh, uh, that actually, you know, John of those three, that actually said, if you sort of understand the Old Testament, God has revealed himself as God. In the New Testament, he's revealed himself as the Son. We are about to move into an era where he reveals himself in the Holy Spirit and there will be moves of the Spirit. Well, of course, he was perfectly right when you sort of see some of the things that have happened in the last 2,000 years. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. 
Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. You might have a naughty question to ask, the sort of question about stuff you're supposed to accept without question. So 1-800-316-316. The Reverend Ronald Burke-Smith is our special guest. Uh, Ronald, let's take a call from Anne-Marie in Tasmania. Hello, Anne-Marie. Welcome along. Thank you. I just have a question about uh, membership. Um, the church we're going to now, they require membership in the church to um, be involved in AGMs and different things that happen. And I just um, find it, I thought I was actually already a member of the church when it talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 onwards where it says for as the body is one and has many members but all the members of that one body being many uh, are one body as also is Christ and then it goes to talk about that so I was just um, wanting to know um, the opinion of the gentleman that is um, on talk Anne-Marie, it is a great question because uh, even as you're saying that, my mind is racing to all sorts of thoughts but let's hear from Ron. Ron, your thoughts for Anne-Marie? Well, <laughs> what do we find that the, what the Bible says? The Bible says um, in John three sixteen, uh, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, right? That's a big word. Whosoever believes uh, in Him should not perish, but have a everlasting life. It goes on to say Jesus came not to condemn. Uh, not to judge the world, but to bring them to a relationship with God. Okay? I don't see any rules and regulations there other than believing. I would uh, just in, just to add to this conversation here, um, there's a verse in Galatians, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, uh, where Paul says that three disciples of Jesus says, gave me and Barnabas their right hand of fellowship. And I know that in some traditions, uh, thinking of uh, open brethren, uh, there has always been this thought of a right hand of fellowship introduces you into membership of the church. Uh, Those sorts of traditions are often pretty good, and there's a biblical basis for that, Ron. Yes. Well, you see, the thing is that (laughs) what I was not actually saying deliberately is that we humans have complicated things. We're very good at it. We're very good at making... We're doing what the Pharisees did. We actually take what God said and we then we say, oh, well, in order to do that, we've got to do this and we've got to do that and we've got to do something else and we've got to make sure that we dot this I and cross this T and you know what I'm saying? We put all these rules and ticky-tacky in place in order to sort of make us all conform. But in actual fact, God never said in the first place. Hmm. He just said, if you believe in me and you honour me, you're you're part of my family. And Marie, is that a useful and helpful response? Yes, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Anne-Marie, well, thank you so much, Anne-Marie. Our talkback line opened on 1-800-316-316. When you say when we've got to 
dot the I's and cross the T's, Ron. Uh, when you get a bigger group of people, all of a sudden you've got issues of governance and you might have a church constitution. And so the constitution might create some rules for who's in and who's out. And that's more about protection for the church, uh, not actually trying to, uh, you know, keep everybody under the thumb. So those sorts of things have to be kept into consideration when you're talking about membership in church. Well, and that's where Paul was actually talking about when in Colossians when he said that uh, when Jesus went up, he took captive and he gave, he gave apostles, he gave you know, and he listed all the different things. In other words, he he gave the the structure for a church, right? That's what it says. So, so we look at the structure, um, and. In that structure, there would be provision for, if you like, plans and organisations. And but I mean, it, it, it nowhere says that we have to become structured with a book of rules and regulations. You know, and uh, like the Pharisees. Uh, that was right. the thing that Jesus was so against the Pharisees for, because you know, for for the simple thing of of resting on the Sabbath. They said you could only walk from here to there. You could only do this. You couldn't do that. You know what I'm saying? They they made everything complicated and difficult. So complication is man-made. God has actually made yeah. it fairly simple. And uh, so right. really, so cultures all around the world, uh, cultures that are more highly educated, more sophisticated, and those that are less sophisticated, everybody can grasp what God's plan is. But when we get yeah. more sophisticated, yes, there are rules for how church runs, because without those rules, you can't really have church grow. And some churches have grown, as we know, hugely big around the world. Yes. Okay, taking yeah. calls on 1-800-316-316. You might have a naughty question to ask. Let's take a call from Mike in Geraldton in Western Australia. Hi, Mike. Hi there. How are you guys going? Good, Mike. What are your thoughts? Good. Um, look, just in terms of the uh, the question about church membership, uh, I think perhaps uh, uh, it's being viewed from the wrong angle. So a lot of the discussion that's been said so far is in terms of uh, salvation, in terms of who's classed as a Christian and who's not. And I guess uh, I think it's a false assumption to think that um, that uh, church membership call kind of separates the who's in God's family and who's not. I mean, just uh, perhaps another angle that might be helpful is... Uh, in the one of the blueprints in the Bible we have for ministry, you look at uh, Titus chapter one verse nine. Uh, it says this: He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that, is, that is, has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And uh, I've seen in many a membership class um, people who actually, had they been voting members of the church, uh, they would actually undermine the central teachings of the gospel. And in in, in those membership classes. Uh, it was a way of actually protecting the flock to make sure that those uh, the, and, and you know those who actually uh, do hold to the central tenets of Christianity are the ones who are who are voting in uh, in important matters, and I think that's really important. So again, it's not to say that people who aren't members uh, of of a church per se aren't Christians. I mean, uh, but it, it's more about uh, protecting and, and guarding the truth. And uh, and so everyone in the church ought to be uh, happy to and, and willing to be a part of that. It's much less 
saying uh, who's uh, who's a Christian and who's not, uh, if that all makes sense. Mike, good insight. Uh, thought from you, Ron? Well, I agree with Mike. Um, I agree with Mike, but then I come back to what I said before, where where um, where Paul was actually talking about uh, that uh, Jesus in his ascension gave, and he gave the structure. Well, the the whole purpose of those uh, that structure was that they um, ensured that the the true doctrines of God, the true doctrines and gospel of Jesus Christ, were told, and heresy was excluded and identified once it came in. Uh, and, and and a lot of the stories in the in the New Testament, without going into details, uh, a lot of the stories in the Testament where they identified um, the Gnostics and they identified the Nicolaitans and and the, the the Judaisms and and what have you that were coming in to sort of change the 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 gospel. Well, that was the role of the the church leadership as it was structured. A wonderful point there to be made. And Mike, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316. Just before we move on to another call, there is a thought that comes out of listening to those uh, thoughts and responses that uh, what ordinary members of the church are accepting of uh, so far as these sorts of membership regulations, uh, that's a fairly lax, a simple and open way of talking about how church might relate together. But as soon as you introduce your aspiration to leadership, all of a sudden some of those things become very important, don't they, Ron? Oh, they do. Yes, they do. Um, and, and I think that's where it's important um, that church leadership... Um, is is very carefully ingrained in the the Word of God in the the Memra the Word of God Memra being the Word right uh, that's the Hebrew word for the Word um, that we know those of us that are in positions um, of leadership. Whether it be in pastoral, whether it be in um, church leadership, in teaching, in preaching, in evangelism, or whatever it is that you're going to be in, you really are well grounded in the Word of God. Uh, and it's absolutely imperative, I think. Uh, one of the things that really worries me is that I, I hear a lot of, uh, well, a lot, I mean, I hear some preachers. Uh, and they are not grounded in the word. And I listen to their preaching, and I think to myself, "Good heavens!" You know, I, I almost feel like saying them, "Now listen, come here with me, and let's have a look at the word of God and what you're saying. You know, what you're saying is not right. You, you, you're actually sprinkling a whole lot of philosophy with uh, little sprinkles of um, gospel passages that don't interconnect or relate to each other, but they sound good." It all gets complicated when you're aspiring to a level of leadership. Just a couple of minutes out from news. Let's see if we can squeeze in one more call before news. Charlie is in Brisbane. Hi, Charlie. Hi, how are you? Very good, Charlie. Need to be quick. What are your thoughts? Yes, um, I just have a question about some churches allow female preachers and some churches don't. Just want to hear your thoughts on that. Wonderful stuff. Uh, Thoughts here from you, Ron. 
<laughs> well, uh, that's interesting. Um, I, I know the Anglican Church does have an issue with this, um, which of course uh, sort of grates on me a little bit because I have uh, I have a Salvation Army background, and uh, in my background, women officers had the same rank as men officers, <laughs> um, and um, and so. Um, that that wasn't an issue, you know. I mean, William Booth said some of my best men are women. Um, so uh, so yeah, um, I do understand the theological stance uh, that is taken um, of why women. It mainly goes back to Corinthians, uh, where women sort of got a little bit chatty when they should have shut up. But anyway, um, but I don't think that necessarily. Um, Personally, I don't think that's necessarily an adequate argument because God has called some pretty amazing women down through the scriptures to do some pretty dramatic things. Okay, we're going to have to uh, cut our response short here. There might be some more to say about that after the news, but Charlie Mm -hmm. in Brisbane, thank you so much for your call. Listeners are thinking of their own question. Uh, Let me ask you, uh, why do Protestant churches have only two sacraments, whereas uh, you have some churches uh, that have as many as seven. Uh, what are your thoughts here on the number of sacraments that uh, churches do, like baptism and uh, the Holy Communion or the Eucharist, as they call it in the Catholic Church? What are your thoughts on these sorts of sacraments? Well, <laughs> really, they're, um, they boil down to, um, you know, you call them sacraments, and that just simply means that you're actually identifying this particular thing as something that is, in your lingo, as sacred, um, separating it out. Uh, I think the Catholic has seven, um, and the Protestants usually, as you say, only have the two. Um, I think it's just a matter of uh, church tradition. Um, you know, like I, I, I understand why they call certain things like marriage in the Catholic Church is a is a sacrament. Um, what I don't understand is if they're going to make it a sacrament, why then is there a provision for divorce? Because as far as I understand, if you have a sacrament. You can't undo it. It's sacred. Yes, it gets complicated and gets quite involved. And uh, we might say, though, uh, that as as you're indicating here, too, that marriage as a sacrament or one of those things that you might identify as sacred uh, is a very good thing because going through what we've been through uh, since about uh, four or five years ago with the Hmm. marriage debate in Australia and the way things disintegrated and the definition of marriage changed, it's as though, well, why didn't we all have marriage as something considered a little more sacred than we did because there maybe appeared to be some sort of division between the churches. But because marriage is not a sacrament in the scriptures, uh, then we have some churches that say it's not that sacred. Uh, that's What are well, your thoughts here? I don't, I, I'm not really quite sure that I, I fully agree with it because right from the beginning, um, Yahweh, God, said to mankind... Uh, for this reason, um, uh, man and woman will come together in marriage 
And let's understand what marriage is. Marriage is not the piece of paper. It is not the, the minister standing up and saying, blah, 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 I now pronounce you man and woman, right? It has nothing to do with that as far as God is concerned. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman together, and that's we would call that coitus or sex today. That is the actual functional role of marriage. Whatever else you want to add or, sub- or subtract or ballyhoo around it is a, is a man-made thing. As far as God is concerned, it's a physical act between the two of them becoming one flesh. Right? Okay, yep. Right. Now, once you establish that, then you actually say, well, you can't undo that because once that's happened, you've become one flesh. Now, it was, it was, the, it was the children of Israel that whinged, and Moses, Moses, not God, Moses gave them divorce. Mm. But God never ever did, because if you remember, when Jesus was in the temple and, and they brought the woman caught in adultery, uh, and they, they used that, that whole thing, and Jesus, Jesus said, well, hang on a moment, um, what does it say in the scriptures? What does, what does God said? You know, man and a woman will come together and they'll become one flesh. God never ever said anything about divorce. Moses did that. Well, now, here's a question. As far as I'm concerned, he that has without, is without sin, you cast the first stone. Go on. Off you go. Yes. So here's the sort of question, the naughty question you can ask the leaders in your local church about how they feel about those biblical foundations for marriage because at a time that some are saying and uh, a number of different denominations going woke in their attitudes to sexuality relationships and marriage this may be the sort of question that you can ask and come back to a biblical foundation and so when you're in a denomination you may well be holding to a biblical foundation even though yeah. your denomination might be swaying or wavering a little on what they actually see as being the sacred thing. Very powerful thought there. Good stuff, uh, Ron. Hey, there's some well, other things. Opinion, yep. Well, Neil, just before you go on, in my opinion, if I, was, if, if I was put in a position of having to make a decision between what I know God said and what tradition is saying, my eternal relationship with God supersedes anything to do with man's tradition. Yes. Well, this is so powerful because as change sweeps through the West, and that includes Australia, and that includes what's going on in some of our churches today, recognizing a foundation from the Bible is going to set us in a place where we recognize the transcendent God who makes the rules, who set these things up originally, he's actually more important than the man-made rules that might try and dissuade us from understanding and holding tight to those really, really foundational uh, traditions. I'd be more worried about facing up to him than I would be any human being. One day we'll stand before him and we'll give our own, uh, you know, we'll have to stand and uh, give account for our own Ooh. beliefs and our actions. That's that's a really powerful right. thing, isn't it? And uh, That's exactly right. 
Okay, there's some other things just to pick up on while we're talking about these sacraments. Uh, anointing of the sick is one of the sacraments that they would have in the Catholic Church. Uh, and so when we, you know, appreciate scriptural foundation of anointing with oil and, uh, you know, call the elders around and the laying on of hands and the anointing of oil, those sorts of things from the New Testament as well. Uh, these okay. things, as you say, elevated to a higher level in some churches and not others. Mm, but I mean to say, you'll find that in a lot of the other churches other than the Roman Catholics who have made it a sacrament, you'll find that it, it's, a, it's an activity that actually does take place. You know, they call for the elders and they pray over the, over the sick. That's what ministers do. They've been doing it for the last 2,000 years. Um, you know, um, down throughout my, my ministry, um, uh, hospital visitations, visiting people that are sick, visiting people in the homes. You know, it, it's, a, it's a natural thing to actually, a person that comes to you and says, I, I've got this, one of my, you know, I, I've been to the doctors and the doctors told me I've got blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they're frightened. You know, they're, 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 they're sort of trying to come to grips with, with this. And for all the medical science that we have and everything, there's still a, a certain amount of fear. Well, um, the role of the minister is to say to them, look, um, one out of one die, so let's, let's not worry about that. That's going to happen anyway. But in the interim period, we will uh, pray for you and we will anoint you with with." oil, which is significant of the Holy Spirit, and we are praying that you will have peace, shalom, peace within yourself. You know? Yes. And Once Ron, I have that, a lot of healing comes. There's something significant in the physical act of using the oil, usually olive oil. Yes. Something yes. in the physical act of using something that is symbolic that actually yes. affirms in the spirit of the person who's receiving that prayer uh, this wonderful yes. divine dimension of what's happening when you pray for the sick. Uh, that's something yes. we... This is true. This is true, Neil. And, 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 and parallel with that, and, and, and again coming to one of those other sacraments in the, in the Catholic Church, is forgiveness. Um, when you actually come to a person and their home and, and they actually confess to you, which they do, you know, um, the confession is one thing. The spoken word by the person who is representing God in that particular situation, albeit a minister, but it doesn't have to necessarily be, to actually say to them, the Word of God says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I declare to you that because of your confession, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's a catharsis in that. Of course, there's controversy, isn't there, especially for the Catholic Church on the sacredness of the confessional. And while we can appreciate this from a biblical standpoint, uh, the secular uh, lawmakers will say if someone divulges something 
and it could be of a pedophile nature, and uh, we might all have our own opinions on what ought to happen in all of that. But uh, they're saying that the sacredness of the confessional ought to be broken, and that person needs to be reported. But as you are saying, there's a certain cathartic healing that happens when there's a confession of our sins and then even though it's a even though it's a person on the other side of that screen who is saying i'm absolving you from that sin uh, that's actually a powerful spiritual thing that can bring release for a person no matter what sort of sin they may have committed hey we're taking calls let's continue to take calls let's hear from cindy in banala hello cindy welcome hello um, how do you get um, how do you get saved if you're in a church that um, doesn't preach the salvation message and there's many of them there's like hundreds of them there's um, ones that have the side Bible which they've made up their own rubbish that they include that's, and then they get off track and don't ever actually tell the salvation message they focus on other rubbish or you're, they're in cults and which you know that's totally mixed up and you know it's totally not there in that those ones um and then people where you do give them the salvation message on the street or, or members of your um, circle that you want to get saved um if if they don't relay the message back to you does it still count i thought you had to speak it out of your mouth that you want jesus wonderful stuff cindy let's come to the subterranean anglican ronald burksmith uh, because it actually matters where you come from here as to uh, you know how you deal with the question about being saved in a in a church where they don't necessarily preach what we might understand is a proclamation of the gospel. Let's be perfectly honest. God is not particularly interested in um, what badge you're wearing or what uniform you're wearing or what colour dress you've got on or whether you wear a hat or don't. I think God is really interested in your relationship with him and the onus remains with you um, to understand the gospel. Now, we have the word of God, the memra, uh, the word of God that clearly says to us um, that the gospel message is that um, Jesus has come as the Messiah uh, he, he came in, in the way he came, through the incarnation. He always existed as the memra back there in Genesis, but he came down in through the incarnation via Mary. He grew up as a, as a man, and his whole teaching was to bring people to God to say to them, look, all of the paraphernalia and nonsense that you're doing, you know, the Pharisees with their rules and regulations and what have you, all that's not, I mean, it's important, but it's not that important if you miss the point of your relationship with God. Now, I'm here to tell you, get straight with God. And furthermore, I'm going to go and die on a cross to make sure that when I actually do die and I will rise again on the third day uh, to prove to you that I mean what I say and I say what I mean and I'm really fair dinkum about it, uh, not only that, but when I ascend to my Father, I'm going to intercede on your behalf and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to help you um, remain blameless unto the coming. Not faultless, blameless. 
the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to keep you secure and safe. He's going to seal you as a child of the living God. Now, the onus really is nothing to do with the church or which way you belong to or what badge you want to wear. It's everything to do with your own personal relationship with God. Wonderful stuff. Cindy in Benalla, thank you so much for your call. Let's continue to take some calls. Ron is in St Mary's in New South Wales. Hi, Ron. Welcome. Oh, oh thanks, Neil. Yeah, and um, it's the other Ron, isn't it? Yeah. It's another Ron. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. a good name, yeah. Ron. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah, mate. I've learned to live with it. Yeah, yeah look, enjoying the conversation. Um, I've got, I guess, I get, I've got, I guess it's a naughty question. Um just getting back to the um, woman caller you had before the news, um, she was asking about leaders in the church. Yep. And um, my question um, relates to that, um, about having um, female leaders, not, not so much female leaders, but female pastors um, or yeah, in, in the church pastoring or ministering over a church, because I, I get back, I think, to um, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, um, where it clearly says um, that, uh, a leader of a church has to be a husband of one wife and it, it lays out other qualifications. And um, I think it also goes back to um, Genesis where Adam was created first. Hmm. Are you there, Ron? Sorry, I think we yes, might have... Yes, I am. Seen... Actually, I, I, and I, I take Ron's point. Um, I, I, um, I have a lot of sympathy for, for that line of thinking, Um now, when my wife and I were in ministry, um, I was always the minister, uh, and she was my assistant. You know what I'm saying? And she was yeah, quite oh, yeah, content yeah. To, be, to, to be in, in that functional role, even though she was just as qualified as I am. Um, uh, she, she maintained that uh, the public persona is that they look to the man. Uh, now, um, I accepted that, uh, and I, I do accept that. Um, but I also, uh, I also accept the fact that um, in, in many situations, um, <laughs> the, the men are either not available or not adequate for the role, and sometimes the women have to step up. Uh, now you'll see that in in the New Testament, with um, where originally we are introduced to Aquila and Priscilla, but then later on it turns around and it's Priscilla and Aquila, and we find that Priscilla becomes the dominant one, um, particularly after they've they've been back to Rome. Rome's burnt. They've they've been kicked out. They've come back to uh, Corinth. Uh, and then they go back to Rome, and then they end up in Ephesus. And that's when you find that it's Priscilla and Aquila. So I think even Paul recognised that, that sometimes the, um, like William Booth did, you know, his best men were women. Okay. And look, there's a lot to debate around this whole issue. And, uh, you know, you might even then bring into the debate 
uh, priests and ministers, uh, and then the Ephesians chapter 4 description of leaders in the church, of apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers, and uh, different movements are, uh, in fact, uh, differentiating uh, how that all works too, and there's some rules around male and female in some of those, but uh, some churches have relaxed on that. Just quickly as we move on from here, uh, first century culture and the setting that we're reading these things about uh, women and men in leadership, uh, coming back to Jesus' words, where he talks about servants. Uh, if you want to be the leader, be the greatest servant. So servanthood yes. doesn't demand titles and doesn't demand yeah. all sorts of levels of respect. Servanthood is actually a position of humility. So if you're actually yes, uh, making sense of that, I imagine that's important too, Ron. Oh, I think it is. I, I, well, I, th- <laughs> I think it's absolutely imperative because I've seen some pretty... Um uh, not humble leaders. <laughs> and uh, Ron in St Mary's, uh, did we did we sort of cover some things there adequately? I mean, this is a big conversation, but uh, Ron, any? Yeah, no, no, that's a big big conversation. No, I mean, I don't think you answered my question adequately, but I I do understand that where men won't won't stand up, then um, the best man for the job is a woman. I I believe that too, but um. I think it's not the not the ideal that God intended. But no, I think you've done a good job. Oh, no, of... no, I, I agree with you that it's not the ideal that God intended. But um, God, right through the whole Bible, we find that God made do with what he had and made exceptional situations out of it. Wonderful. Uh, and Ron, closing on the point that there is one New Testament character, Junior, who is considered by many to have been an apostle, a female yes. apostle. So uh, there's tremendous things to research from yes. the scriptures and finding a biblical yes. foundation for uh, discussions around leadership. Ron, thank you so much for your call. We will have to put a line under calls from here. We've run out of time. Uh, the Reverend Ronald Burksmith has been our guest. Wonderful to be able to talk about some of these traditions that we have in church and making sense of that. Uh, Ronald, your book, What, For and Why, I mentioned you've got that spelt W-O-T, the number four, and Y, the letter Y, and a question mark, asking those naughty questions about stuff you're supposed to accept without question. There might be some listeners who want to get a hold of your book, and it's available through online booksellers like Kurong or Amazon or the Book Depository. It's published by Balboa Press. Is there a special yes. website, uh, Ronald? Have you got a, a website that people can connect no, with you directly? No, I'm in the process of, bu- of building that at the moment. Um, uh, no, I, I didn't have one, but uh, gee whiz, I'm, I'm being forced to get one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your arm's being twisted, so uh, the technology yes, is. is going to be there to give you that opportunity <laughs> to connect with people who want to actually engage with you in a really deep way. Hey, Ronald... Yes. Thank you so much. Let's do this again on another day. There's so much that is confusing in the way that we do things in church. It's not all bad. In fact, so much of it is so good. Just understanding it oh, is a yeah. wonderful thing. So Yeah, this is it. I mean to say I would hate to want to I would hate for people to think that I want to change them. I mean everybody I mean people feel happy where they are and what they're doing and some people like you know, as you say the robes and the bells and smells I mean they they like that well that's cool that's cool uh, you know I'm not going to judge them
That's right. And there's all sorts of deeper science around how we relate to the things that we've been raised in with those sorts of traditions and liturgies. Hey, Ronald, thank you so much for uh, sharing your heart once again today on 2020. It's a privilege. Thank you very much. I've loved it. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.